What are some unpopular things to talk about in church? Hell? On a really hot day, when it's going to be 102, you're like, I could preach that message, actually. How about giving? Do you like a good message on giving? <laughs> Is there such a thing? Especially when there's the tendency to like then tell you how to spend your money so you can save it. Rite Aid is having a sale on sparkly teeth toothpaste. If you'll use that instead of Crest, you'll save a dollar a month. If you'll take sh shorter showers, cold ones, that's about $500 a year. We could use that. It's usually for a building project, which we have. <laughs> so if you're wondering about a building project, here's my message on giving. Uh, you can, there's a video right now that's kind of updating what's happening on the building. Uh, there's work happening. There's excavation. We have funds to do what we're calling phase three, which is underground work, cement, and then a big metal shell. All right. So that's kind of where we're at right now. It started. It's working. There's a video. Check it out. So there's my message on giving. Do as you feel led. So giving can be unpopular. Sin can be unpopular. I think the message today, I don't find a lot of messages on this topic either. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 23, and maybe you can figure out what this message will be on. Genesis 23, 1, Sarah lived 127 years. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible who we are given how long she lived. So if you're doing Bible trivia, that's a keeper. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Can you take a guess what we're going to talk about? Death. If you go back 200 years, the Puritans loved preaching on death. Like it seems like every other week they would preach on death. In fact, churches 200 years ago, guess what you had to walk through before you got to church? A graveyard. That was purposeful. It was to remind you as you're going to church, one day you'll be right here. So come on in, enter into the joy of the Lord, right? And so it was one of their most popular. They have tons and tons of sermons on death. 
and they never, ever gave sermons on sex. Today, if you look at the catalog of a church, what they preach on, they never, ever preach on death, and most likely you'll find quite a number on sex. So today, we're going to reverse that, we're going to paddle upstream, and we're going to talk about death. I'll try to go short. I'll try to make sure you don't die today from the heat. But I think the reason why we have an entire chapter given to death in Genesis is it's very important to know how to deal with death and how it's supposed to move you and me as modern believers in Jesus, okay? So I want you to notice the first thing we see, and it's in verse 2. Sarah died, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Number one, death hurts. I know that seems super obvious, but it's okay. So we've watched Abraham now for about three months. He's done some hard things. He's had to leave everything he knows, and he didn't cry. He's had to send away his favorite nephew, Lot, and he did not cry. He had to send away his son, Ishmael, and he did not cry. He had to go up on a mountain believing he was going to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and he didn't cry. And yet at the death of his wife, Sarah, it's the first time we see recorded that Abraham wept. Death hurts. I say this because there's a tendency in believers when there's a death of a loved one or a friend or someone like that, it's like we want to go in there and we want to like force happiness into death. Have you noticed that? So we want to like quote Romans 8, 28, which is true, but I never quote that when someone dies. It's true, but I don't quote that. I don't try to bring happiness into death because death is an enemy and death hurts. I think what you do when someone dies is you cry. I tell people, I hate death. I hate cancer. I hate automobile accidents. I hate it. That's what I tell people. This is wrong, and I hate it. And then I cry. Jesus, in John chapter 11, verse 35, goes to his friend Lazarus' tomb, and guess what he does at that tomb? Right? You can memorize a verse today. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. All right? So today you've done your Bible memorization. Everyone has a verse. Why did Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus? Because he knew as creator of the universe, this is wrong. This is the enemy. This is wrong. And it hurts. The best thing you can do for someone when they are mourning the loss of a loved one is to weep. Romans 12 says, we weep with those that weep. I don't try to force happiness in that situation. I just cry because number one, death hurts. Number two, death deserves a moment. You have in chapter 23, a whole chapter on death. And what happens how they walk out death? It's almost like a memorial service. Now, if you know the writing of the Bible, it was written on scrolls, and a scroll was very, very expensive. About $50,000 it would cost you to get Genesis 
So you can figure out your salary is the amount of money you have to pay for Genesis. So what that made the authors do under the inspiration of God's spirit is only put in their things that really mattered. So when you see an entire chapter given for death, what the Bible is saying is this really matters. Death deserves a moment because there's something that can happen in death that I don't think happens at any other time in our life. So Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse two puts it like this. It's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party because at a funeral, you consider your end. Weddings, parties, fun, but funerals change you and change me. Better to go to a funeral than a party. And I found this to be true that good things can happen at a funeral. I'll give you an example. So back in 2005, I put together this relief missions trip to India. It was the first time I'd been to India. And it was in response to, if you remember, there was a December 26th tsunami in 2004. There in that region, a quarter of a million people died. Just brutal, terrible, sad, horrific situation. So I wanted to go over there and help because there's a lot of death that happens afterwards because of disease and sickness. So we had like a filtration system and there's a pastor's conference we can do. We're going to share the gospel. But I also knew this about India, this particular place in India. There's a group, they're called the RSS. They're a radicalized Hindu group and they hate Christians. And actually I had a book by the guy we were going to visit where he talks about believers being skinned alive, limbs cut off, burned to death. Very often, if you read um, or go on websites of the persecuted church, what you'll see is this area has the spike and will be the most persecuted place on the planet for Christians. So I knew that. So I had my radar up a bit when I was heading there. So we go there and there's really good stuff that happens. And then our group, we split into two groups. One van went one way, another van went another way. And we're driving this van out into the middle. I'm talking the middle of nowhere. It'd be like the middle of the Calmeopsis wilderness. There's nothing out there. And so we're out there and all of a sudden we come across this massive group of people and they're crossing over the road and they're carrying wood and sticks. And then we see this white shrouded body and we're like, oh my goodness, this is a Hindu funeral. And what they do in a Hindu funeral is they make a funeral pyre and then they put the body on top and they burn it. So I'm like, turn to Israel, my guide. And he's the, the guy we're visiting there. He's an Indian. And I said, Israel, is this a Hindu funeral? He's like, yeah. Why? Do you want to go? I said, no, man, I choose life. I'm not going out there. He's like, no, no, it should be okay. <laughs> should be okay or will be okay. This is very important for me to know. So anyways, we stopped. We couldn't move anywhere. In fact, there were so many people come across that we didn't have a choice. So we stopped, we got out and we watched this entire thing. And my Radar is up the whole time. I'm like, okay, we're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Hindus, what, what's going to happen here? So finally, Israel's like, hey, let's go. I'm like, let's go. Yeah, let's do that. So we're walking up to the van when Jonah, he's one of the guys in our crew from lives over in Medford, great guy. He's like, hey, Israel, could we give these guys some of our gospel tracks? I'm like, no, no, you may not. Let's go and live. Let's not stay here and have another funeral, buddy. And so at first Israel's like, yeah, yeah, that probably wouldn't be a wise decision. And so we're walk, we keep walking. And he's like, actually, let me check on that. And so he walks back down to the head. And I'm just thinking right at that moment, I should go to the van 
so someone should bring the bad news. They were slaughtered, I escaped, sorry, right? So he goes in and he starts talking. It's a long conversation. We're all just kind of waiting, wondering like, oh, what's going on? And he comes back and goes, here's what they said. They said, the fact that you stopped and you celebrated this moment with them, they feel like God has sent you and they want to hear what you have to say. And so we got to share the gospel and hand out this stuff and something incredible happened. That's what can take place at a funeral. That there is a... Uh, uh, willingness to consider your end, to consider life, to consider this, this thing that we're on, that I don't think it happens any other way. I love weddings, and this has been the summer of weddings. Have you guys noticed that? This is the first weekend that we have not been at a wedding all summer. Like it's been every single weekend, writing a check for, okay. <laughs> love it. Most weddings. Love them. However, Funerals, when I sit at a funeral, something happens to me. There is a change, a consideration of my end that's really healthy. So death deserves a moment. Go to funerals. Death deserves a moment. Number three, notice what he says about the burying of his wife. It's verse four. I'm going to bury my dead out of my sight. Literally there it is. I'm going to separate from my loved one, from Sarah. We're going to be separated. Okay, Genesis, if you haven't heard me say this, I'll say it over and over, is meant to be read from cover to cover. That it's actually forming a way of thinking and it's, it's aligning us with the right kind of way that we're supposed to see the world, okay? So this separation in the Hebrew mind, it would instantly launch them back to the very beginning. And it would define for them what death is because in America, in English, I don't think we have the right definition of death. So let me try to clarify it for you. The first time we see death mentioned is actually in the garden. Adam there is created. And the creation of Adam is very different than the animals, right? God speaks, animals become. The creation of Adam is this. He's formed out of dirt. Because when we die, this body just goes right back to the dirt. He's formed out of dirt. Then what does God do? He breathes into him his ruach. It can be translated spirit breath or wind, that there is dirt plus divine breath. And then we are called literally a nefesh, a living entity, very different than animals. We're not like the antelope. We're not like the lion. We are dirt plus divine breath. That's Genesis chapter two, verse seven, right? So then Adam is alive. God's talking with him, dealing with him. And God says this to him, hey, you can eat of every tree you want in this garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. First mention of death. What's fascinating is Adam doesn't ask what's death. Somehow he already comprehended what it was. So what then happens is, does Adam avoid that tree? No. Chapter three, Adam and Eve eat of that tree and do they fall over dead right away? Is it like a poisonous apple that they eat then and then they just blow up or, or their guts come out and they die? No, they have children, they live long lives, they produce, they talk, they have, you know, it's a long time and then just a normal long life and then they die. So what was God saying when God says death on the day that you eat of it, you'll die? What happened on the day they ate of the tree? 
they were kicked out of the garden and their communion with the father, the father would come down and walk with them and talk with them in the cool of the garden. That communion was broken. A biblical definition of death is actually separation. That's what it is. It's, you're going to be separated from the good place that I have for you. You're going to be separated from my communion with you. That's what's going to happen. Death is separation. And if you look at the New Testament, it backs this up. So Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he's talking to a group of people. and He says this, don't be afraid of the one that can kill this body. Don't worry about the material. Instead, fear the one that when the body has died, can damn the real you, the immaterial, to hell. That in death, Jesus says, there's a separation. The body, don't even worry about it. What matters is the immaterial part of you. Then you can look at first, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul says this, to be absent from the body, the material, is to be present with the Lord, right? That at death, there's a separation of body, goes back to the dust, but the immaterial part of you continues on. It's separated. You can look at chapter four of that same book where Paul says this, the outward man, it's, it's perishing, but the inward me, man, it's growing stronger and stronger. Every, it's being renewed. And then he continues in that vein. He says this, one day, the real me is going to put off this tent. He just calls this body a tent. I'm going to put off this tent and then I'm going to be clothed with something that's incredible. I'm going to get my real me that I will exist in for eternity, right? Then Philippians, classic. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. So the New Testament really backs up. Death is actually just a separation. So there's spiritual death, Ephesians 2.1, which is what happened in the garden. Separation from God's good plan for them, Eden. Separation from fellowship with God. That happened because of Genesis 3. And then there is physical death, which is when the material, the tent, goes in the ground, and the immaterial goes before its maker. So death is separation. And I'll say this, separation is not natural. This was never supposed to happen. So if you and I, we're just part of the circle of life, I call it Simba theology from that movie, if we're just part of the circle of life, we're just fertilizer, then, then why are we so different when it comes to death? Why do we freak out so bad about death? Why are we always worried about it? You go to a funeral and what seems to happen to you? You're worried, right? You see the slideshow? I think slideshows are awesome, but it's the most unnatural thing in the world to watch these pictures of somebody that you know is in that coffin or in the ground now. It's just strange, that there's something wrong. Something's been broken. If we're just chemical reactions, if that's all we are, if we're just random mutations that led to us, in fact, the random mutations require death to get us, then why do we hate it so much? Why do we fear death so much? Why? Animals don't seem to worry about it, do they? Animals don't seem worried about death. You ever gone to wildlife safari? What do you have to do to the lions? You got to yell at them to wake him up, right? Get up, do something. They're not worried about their cholesterol level. They're not worried about getting exercise. They're not doing Pilates, Piloxine. They're not doing any of that. Why? Because they could care less. They don't even consider their end. 
It doesn't matter to them. I have a running joke with you guys. And the running joke is this. Death is the only reason we eat kale. And every time I say that, somebody sends me the recipe. Oh, you just haven't had kale like this. I'm like, that's not the point. Right? If ice cream was found to be a superfood, would you eat kale or ice cream? If they had the exact same nutritional value and it was, the fountain, it was found that ice cream was the fountain of life, would you eat kale anymore? No way, right? Cook it however you like. I'm sure it's delicious, but it's not ice cream. That's my point. The reason we eat healthy is we know, oh, death is stalking us. So I'll eat some kale, right? I'll watch how I live because death's stalking me. We fear it. We run from it. I call that little thing in us, I call it the echo of Eden, that in our collective mind, we all know Genesis chapter one and two, we were never designed to die. We were never designed for this separation, that it is unnatural, that we're supposed to actually exist for eternity in God's presence. We're supposed to eat of the tree of life and never die. That's actually how we were designed. And something has happened to us where the glory we're supposed to have, read Psalm chapter eight, that we're actually created with glory, kavod, the same word that describes God, that we're supposed to be kings and queens ruling here on planet earth like God rules in heaven for eternity. We're supposed to be doing that, but something knocked our crowns off. And you read every ancient literature, they all knew it, they could all sense it. Something, something's removed our crown. It was Genesis chapter three. And death then becomes enemy number one. But here's the good news. And here's how I'll conclude. The good news is this. Death has been defeated. Let me read for you one final text. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I saw my mom. I saw her decompose. They put bodies in limestone caves and they actually washed the decomposition till they could get the bones and then they put all the bones together and put them in a little ossuary box. I saw that happen. What kind of body is she going to have, Right? Seems like a legitimate question, not according to Paul. You foolish person. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed, its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. Okay? So here's what Paul's getting at. Paul's saying, like a seed, you take that seed, you plant it in the ground, and what comes out looks nothing like that seed. It has much more glory. It has much more beauty. It's a better thing. So what Paul is saying is, listen, that's what you are. That when this material goes into the ground, 
you are planting and you're becoming something else. That the Simba theology, and I'll explain it for you. So the song or, or the explanation of Simba is this. Hey, we eat the deer, right? The deer eat the grass, we eat the deer, but then one day we die and our bodies go into the ground, we become fertilizer and the grass grows up. And then the deer eat the grass, circle of life, right? So take hope, Simba, you're fertilizer, right? That's really it. I'm like, that's not very hopeful. If it's just Simba theology, death becomes the executioner. It ends the circle. But Paul would say this. He would say, Jesus changed death from an executioner to a gardener. And now you get planted and what you produce and what you become is something that we cannot possibly understand. Well, how does that happen? Well, I'll read one final verse. It's verse 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, Genesis 3. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The victory over what? Ah, the victory over death. That's what's mean. context, victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how did that happen? How did Jesus give us victory over death? Let me give you two pictures of it in the Bible. Picture number one is the book of Revelation. Revelation, John is giving to us this incredible kind of, he, he just, he's, a, he's a painter. He, it's images, it's images, it's images. Let me draw you a picture is what he would say. And it's for a group of people that are going to go through horrendously hard times. And he says, in the midst of these horrendous hard times, these death camps that filled the Roman catacombs, listen, you can take hope. And so he gives this picture. It's Revelation 6. It's the four horsemen. And the four horsemen come and they're everything we're afraid of. Death, disease, famine. And the first rider is this white rider and it's actually the Antichrist. And it says the Antichrist comes and he has a bow, like a weapon. But guess what's missing in the portrait? He has no arrows. And it's very, very important that he has no arrows. Because if you met somebody like this, so let's say you go home and you come into your front door and there's somebody robbing your home and he's five foot zero, 90 pounds. You're not afraid of him, but then all of a sudden he pulls a gun on you. If you knew the gun was not loaded, would that change the situation? Yes, you would take the gun from him and then you would share the gospel. <laughs> I, no, I got no fear. What John is saying in Revelation 6 with the Antichrist, is, he says, listen, yeah, he might have a bow and he might threaten you with it, but it's not loaded. What happened to all his arrows? They were spent, Colossians chapter 2, on Jesus on the cross. That the arrows of death, the sting of sin, they were all spent on Jesus on the cross, right? And when it says the sting of death, what you're supposed to think about in your mind is this, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's called the first mention of the gospel. Because there, Adam and Eve are told this right after they sin. They're told this, listen, there's coming the seed of the woman. And serpent, you bad guy, you're going to bruise his heel. How does a serpent bruise your heel? Right? If you step on a serpent, does that bruise your heel? No, they're soft. The only way a serpent bruises your heel is if it bites you and injects its venom in you. So 
You're going to, you're, you're, this, this serpent is going to bruise your heel, but you are going to crush its head. What happened on the cross was this, the sting of death because of sin. Our greatest enemy, Genesis chapter three, the sting of death, all that venom that the enemy has was absorbed by Jesus Christ. And you and I now as believers, we no longer have to fear death because death is not the executioner. Death is the gardener and it plants you and me and we become something that's out of this world. That's the truth of scripture. And when people grasp this throughout church history, it transformed them. It allowed them when there was plagues inside of the big cities, look at Carthage. Carthage is being destroyed by plagues in the fourth century. Everyone left it except for one group of people went into that city. You know who that group was? Christians. Because they said this, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'm not afraid of this. There's a hurting person in there, right? Read about Max Colby. Google him, priest in World War II, in the death camps. If he just believed he was fertilizer, he would never have done this. But there's a, there was a group of 10 people that were chosen out to die. One of them was this young guy who had a family at home. And Max Colby, a priest, said, I'll take his place. And he did. Brilliant story. If we're just fertilizer, no one does that. But if you believe to live as Christ and to die as gain, you become a hero. Read about Jim Elliott. Read about John Harper on the Titanic who gave his life jacket up for another person because he was not saved. No one does that unless they understand this right here. Unless they understand Jesus Christ absorbed death, the worst enemy we have. And now it's the gardener. It's why I love flowers on tombs. When I see a flower on a tomb, it reminds me that person, if they believed in Jesus, is something brilliantly beautiful in this moment. They put off, put off perishable. They're now clothed with glory and honor. They're back to Psalm 8, what we're supposed to be. They're back to Genesis, Eden. They're back to what we are actually designed to be. That's death to a believer. It's just a doorway now. So when people say, hey, that person passed away, I say, no way. They passed on. They graduated. They're now where they're supposed to be. That gives me hope. And I prepared this message back, um, it was over a week ago, not knowing that Friday night would my family would be together and my wife's phone and my daughter's phones would start blowing up with these texts about a neighbor, great neighbor, always positive, always smiling, always kind, always generous, loved him. Ray Millette would have been on an auto, in a motorcycle accident and died. And it just shocked me. I thought, man, Death again. It reminds me of my final point. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this. Chapter 4, life is like a vapor. It appears and it's gone. Maybe the most fearful thing about death is this. You just don't know. I don't know if I'll get in my Volkswagen van and be heading out and be hit by a semi. I don't know. But here's the motivation that it should do for the believer we should be motivated to leave our house in order. We'll see that actually in chapter 24. That if I have unforgiveness towards somebody, I need to deal with that. I don't want to leave that legacy in that person's life. The Bible says, don't let the sun set on your wrath. If I've been angry with somebody, I better deal with that. I better, with all that I possibly can, leave life 
free from those things. It means when I leave in the morning, I better kiss my wife and kiss my kids because life is like a vapor. And as a Christian, it motivates me to live in that understanding, that light. And so I would say, hey, let Sarah's funeral do what funerals should do. Make sure your house is in order. Make sure your house is in order. If you're here today and you're saying, I don't know where I stand with Jesus. I don't know if he's absorbed the sting for me. I don't know if the arrows that were meant for me, he's taken. If you don't know that, get your house in order. There'll be pastors up here. Titus 2 gals up here. We'll share with you the good news. You can repent and be baptized. Change your mind about life. Change your mind about death. That it's not the executioner. You don't have to run from it. You can know to to live as Christ. This is a good life, no doubt. But man, one day, the seed of this life gets planted and we become something more beautiful than you can imagine. Get your house in order. That's what funerals always tell me to do. I want my house in order. And so Jesus, I thank you for Carolyn and the two boys, Tyler and Kyle, the new grandbaby. My heart breaks for them. I pray you would comfort. I pray the body of Christ would be what we're supposed to be. That we'd wrap our arms and our love around those that are hurt. That we'd weep with those that weep. I pray you would protect them from the evil one who'd want to leverage this into bitterness and anger. Be in that home now. May your shalom, the peace that passes understanding, may it invade their home even in this moment. I pray for each of us. May Sarah's funeral cause us to consider our end. And may we leave homes that are in order forgiveness that's been given, bitterness that's been cleansed, anger that's been dealt with, issues that have been resolved. May we be those. May we be peacemakers because it's peacemakers that inherit the kingdom. So go with us. And may we be those that reign victorious because you've defeated our greatest enemy. And I pray this in Jesus' name, your name. Amen. God bless you guys.